0: the NFL is still king. And then if you look at it on like a per channel level, some of these channels, I think it was Fox, 20% of their viewership is NFL games. So it's extremely important, the content. You have to pay up for it, obviously. Rights are increasing, they've been increasing for years. But I thought the interesting part was the addition of Amazon.
1: Hi, everyone, you are in the game, a podcast about sports and business and the business of sports. My name is Vladimir Bosanets, and along with my co host, Anand Punjabi, we bring you the latest news and analysis of how the world of sports operates as a business. In today's show, we have the great honor to bring you Joe Pompliano, the founder of Huddle Up, a Substack newsletter that he launched in 2020 that actually touches on some of the same topics that we cover as well. As a kindred spirit, Joe breaks down the business and money behind sports, and he does this daily through his newsletter, which now counts over 32,000 subscribers. He talks about the greatest business deals in sports history, the future of collectibles, the next global sports superstar no one is talking about, and other such topics. Most importantly, we ask him to help us break down today the NFL's broadcast deals, which were just finalized last week and we go into some of the details of his own business and how he plans to evolve it. This is the first of two interviews we've conducted with Joe Pompliano, and I hope you'll join us next week for an update on these conversations and the sports ETF he just helped launch as well. So without further ado, welcome to the pod, Joe. Joe, welcome to the show. Good to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm doing
0: well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to sit down with you guys.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Anand, how are things in London? London is very good. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for taking uh, the time to be with us. Yes, of course, of course, guys.
1: Yeah, it's always uh, it's always nice to chat with uh, with a kindred spirit, I suppose. So, Joe, by way of introduction, tell us a little about yourself and huddle up, kind of, you know, what what you do, just sort of. Uh, you know, a little bit of an overview of where you are in this sports business
0: uh, world. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I write a daily newsletter called Huddle Up. It's sports business focused. It talks about anything involving the money and business behind sports. It's kind of the mantra of it. We discuss could be contracts, player contracts, player investments, media deals, league-wide revenues, franchise valuations. It could be anything, right? Uh, so I've been doing that since July. It has 32, 33,000 subscribers. Um, I okay. run a Twitter account that has about 160,000 subscribers and it's gone well. Yeah. So it's, it's just me. I, uh, the newsletter is Monday through Friday every day. And I kind of tweet out sporadically throughout the day. And then I'm going to be launching a podcast here soon, similar content.
1: Oh, okay. Excellent. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast sphere. <laughs> so you're you're yeah. not a made man until you have a podcast, I think, right?
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Joe, one of the things that I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit about, so the big news that came in the last 24 hours is all around the NFL leasing, signing up, it's kind of wrapping up all the, all the media uh, deals that it has with all the broadcasters. And it was kind of a big news. A couple of months ago, uh, Roger Goodell came out and said he's trying to double the revenue. Uh, just yesterday, I think a press release came out from the league and some media outlets have picked it up that he's basically gotten that, which I was a little surprised. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, so if you look at it on a total level, it's about double, right? A little over double, a hundred percent increase. And then on an annual level, it's a little less. So right around there is a hundred percent increase. But I think generally the way I think about it is the CBSs, is the Foxes, Disney, whether ABC or ESPN, like they don't really have a choice, right? There's like a, a really big gap between the, the networks that pay for NFL rights and have the NFL rights versus those that don't. And I think the big delineation is that the NFL is still king when it comes to TV and everything like that. I, I yes. forget the exact yep. stat, but I want to say, yes, I think it's 71 out of the top 100 shows last year were NFL broadcast. So when you think about That's it, right. just on a yep. basis of like of w- what people are watching, whatever it is, the NFL is still king. And then if you look at it on like a per channel level, some of these channels, I think it was Fox, 20% of their viewership is NFL games. So it's extremely important, the content. You have to pay out for it, obviously. Rights are increasing. They've been increasing for years. But I thought the interesting part was the addition of Amazon, right? So now we have a streaming partner that came into the fold. Yep. And really what that does is the NFL opens up bidding from additional, additional people, right? So there's increased demand. But also... It's just another player, right? So when you think about it in the media space, you add another kind of bidder to the context of sports media rights. Um, Amazon's obviously a large player, but you're going to see more people do it, whether it's um, other players in the streaming space. But right now, those networks don't really have an opportunity to ditch these these content rights. So they have to continue paying up, right? So when you think about it in the context of $4 billion a year in annual ads, they don't really have an option but to pay.
1: That's right. That's right. And it, and I think
0: bringing Amazon was
1: sort of interesting. I think brilliant in some ways. Sort of juiced the action a little bit, if you will. And I don't know if you would have gotten double without Amazon being there. I think Amazon kind of came in and sort of made made that happen. And Anand and I have talked about that also. Sort of this this intermediation of uh, broadcasting is is happening. Streaming is going to grow. They have there there have been um, somewhat lower ratings I think across the board over the last couple of years. So that's interesting that that these companies still went for an 11 year long deal. That that surprised me a little bit that they didn't sort of push back and say, let's maybe do five and see how we go, right? Um, But like you said, maybe they don't have any options.
0: I was going to say, the one thing I would mention is that it was almost news when, uh, you know, Disney and all these places were negotiating, right? People almost expect them to just agree to whatever the NFL wants because that's how it's typically gone. So maybe the the ratings are part of that, but I think what we saw, right, is like ratings were down all over the board. I don't think it was generally an NFL problem, uh, just like it wasn't an NBA problem, just like it wasn't a baseball problem, right? So I'm assuming as things hopefully return to normal here, we'll see some of that kind of normalize and ratings get back to normal, Uh, but even in a year where there was an election cycle, right? When you think about 71 out of the top 100, if you were to take the political debates and the conventions out of that, it would have been like 80 or 90 out of the 100. So it's uh, the NFL is still a massive business. It's a big revenue driver for these networks and they don't really have a choice but to spend aggressively to get these content rights.
1: And they are the king of sports.
2: You mentioned that you know the ad sales were about 4 billion maybe you can help me with the math on this because i didn't quite understand it is that 4 billion in total across all the networks uh, ad sales cuz that sounds like a loss leader to me it seems to me that they're paying more you know for the rights and kind of covering that expense partly with the ad sales it doesn't seem to be a profit in it i must be missing something
0: Well, yeah, certainly not from a profit perspective on the ads. There's no, there, I think it's four across the four major networks, right? CBS, Fox, Disney, NBC. Uh, And when you think about it in the perspective of what they were paying, I think it was like combined maybe four to five billion, right? So it's a loss leader there. But then, right, there's still, I don't know the exact number on TV cable subs that they still have, but there's still 90 or so cable subs. So I think one of the big things to think about too is it decelerates the cord cutting phenomenon that we've seen, right? So when you look at, these networks, these are really the things that people want to see. It's live sports yeah. and it's news are really the only things that are keeping cable alive. And their entire model economically is built on live sports, right? So they get not only the most viewership out of them, but the ad dollars, not only from football, but other sports also. So if you don't have these rights, really, there's no reason for people to come to your network for some of these guys.
1: Yeah. I think Anand, another amount that's missing from that number is the fees that the networks receive from the local channels or the lo- local distributors, or whatever they're called. They also collect, you know, every, every time you pay your monthly bill for cable, yep. a portion of that goes, yep. goes back to them as well. Sure, so it's, sure, uh, sure.
0: yeah, the affiliate fees. That's, that's really what I mean. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so Joe, this is the kind of stuff that you cover. This is the kind of stuff that we also write about. Tell us, you know, how did Huddle Up come as an idea to you? I mean, uh, obviously this is kind of a passion for you in terms of the topic. Uh, where, where did that come from? Uh, you know, growing up also.
0: Yeah. So I grew up, I have four brothers. So as you can imagine, kind of played everything, every sport possible, basketball, football, baseball, soccer, whatever it might be. So I always loved sports. Um, I think it was something that I knew from the very beginning I wanted to do for a career. I just needed to figure out kind of the best path to do that. So I worked for a short period of time at Octagon Sports Agency in Washington, DC. I worked on their digital team. So in the earliest and simplest terms, we were just, So I mean, this was six, seven, eight years ago now. So social media was still newer Newer to the professional athlete atmosphere. And we were working with athletes to not only monetize these relationships, but build these relationships really. So it was, uh, you know, the Steph Currys of the world, guys like that, that were really just trying to figure out yep. what their strategy was on social. And we were doing it all across all of the platforms. So that gave me my first exposure. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to work at JP Morgan in New York City. And while it was different out of sports and it was not necessarily um, within that ecosystem, it was a lot of fun and it was great experience. I learned a lot from the business aspect of it specifically. So after a few years there, I, I figured, you know what, I got some great experience in kind of both of these things. I really enjoyed both of them. How can I get back more towards the sports side, but keep some of the business, right? So I started thinking about the things I cared about, which was just curiosity, right? Which was, uh, you know, how much are these leagues making? What are these players doing with their money? Who are they investing in? What are their returns look like? Uh, And the more I started figuring out that I was curious about these things and and I was telling my friends about them and they're like, Hey, look, like, you know, probably more about this than the normal person does. Why don't you look into doing something about this? So I think like most people, I, I just, I started a newsletter first. I started writing that. It, Started with just friends and family. They started sharing it. It became a little more popular, and then I started tweeting. The Twitter blew up, um, and then the the newsletter followed. Uh, so I was able to take it full time. So it's something that I is obviously a passion of mine, but I've been able to turn into a, a full time career now.
1: Great. And you use Substack to publish your uh, writing, correct? Um, how did that uh, you know differ from let's say using like you know WordPress or a more typical kind of A content management platform.
0: Yeah. So I use Substack. I think Substack was a good choice for me because the easiest way to do it is right. Like I downloaded Substack and you can publish something that day. So I think, while yeah. other words, other sites like WordPress and the other ones are good, it allows you kind of more flexibility and ownership of your content maybe. Uh, Substack was great from the perspective of like, it's really your hands off. All I do is I write. So I write in the portal, I send it out, they take care of subscriptions, they take care of everything else, right? Management of the site, uh, the linkage, everything. So I think for someone starting out like myself that didn't have huge experience on the web development side or any of that, I think it's super helpful to have a site like uh, Substack to fall back on. But I could totally see the other side also, like people who want to own the content, want to make sure that it's getting delivered at the right time, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think there's, there's pros and cons, but for me, Substack was a great option. It still is a great option and I plan on using them for the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah. And is, is it one of those where the form in which way the news or the information is then, you know, delivered kind of, kind of becomes part of your product as well. Right. So it sort of defines how that's created. It sounds like, right.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure I totally understand the question, but I think, yes, Substack has been, has been a great option for me. I recommend it to a lot of people. I mean, there's a reason why it's popular. They make it extremely easy for you to start publishing.
2: On the Twitter side, Vlad and I are both very impressed with the rate at which you've, you've gained you know, a, a not insignificant number of followers. I mean, this is a great number, 160K, nearly 170K in the space of under a year. is fantastic. Now, I'm not gushing about the number. I'm actually quite interested to learn how that has helped you in your relationships and developing your relationships in the world of sports business. You must now have more than just a social media arm's length relationship with some fairly, I would say, important people, relevant people in the world of
0: sports business. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think what it's done is it's it's made introductions, right? That normally may not have been there. So whether that's someone saw something that I tweeted or, or enjoyed one of my articles that I shared or something like that, followed me, whatever it might be, it's, it's, it's definitely made introductions that I would not have made previously. So that's been great. I've been able to connect with not only, you know, professionals in the sports business world, but sports executives outside of it, professional athletes, whoever it might be. But yeah, Twitter has been instrumental in kind of making those connections. I I joke all the time, like I get way more out of uh, Twitter DMs than I probably do out of LinkedIn messages. I'm not sure if that's for everyone, but I think like it's been my biggest channel. So a lot of the traffic that I get and a lot of the relationships that I've built have certainly come from there.
1: Yeah. What's also interesting about this is that as we were growing up, you know, usually sports would, you know, deliver through either, you know, ESPN or the radio or some kind of you know you know magazine or something like that right and i mentioned this intermediation earlier you know as we were talking about the nfl and it seems now there are a lot of you know tools to kind of you know do this right and sort of if you have a certain affinity towards a certain topic you can now create your own content do you see this you know expanding more do you, do you see more folks like like us essentially kind of putting in their their two cents uh, on on this topic and and kind of others
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the internet in general has even the playing field for a lot of sectors and a lot of businesses. And and when you think about kind of businesses that are oriented more towards not only fact-based, but also personal opinion, it opens up a lot through social media, right? So if you think about Twitter, kind of anyone can create an account. And if you're producing really, really, really quality content, you have an advantage, right? So obviously distribution helps and getting in front of as many people as you can helps. But if you're creating really good content consistently, you'll eventually be found. Now it may take, you know, don't get me wrong, it's obviously hard and it may take time. With social media, especially Twitter specifically, it has that virality component where you're able to get in a lot of front in front of a lot of eyeballs. And if the content's really good and compelling, people will follow along. Joe, you know, wanted to sort of tap into some of your
1: experiences around some of the stories that have been kind of percolating over the last year or so. You've been following this, you know, stream of thought for a while but doing something about it since last summer essentially or, or earlier this this year too. What are some of the big trends that you're noticing and I'd, I'd love to sort of play a little game to sort of, you know, all of us to spitball some kind of ideas around things that we are noticing happening in sort of the business of sports that we think will shape it in the next, you know, five to 10 years or so.
0: Joe, since you're our guest, I'll let you kind of start first. Yeah. I think there's probably two main things for me. I think number one, which we don't have to go as deep on as, as number two, but number one would be athlete empowerment. I think we're seeing a large shift towards an empowerment from athletes specifically. So whether that's through social media, whether that's team specific whatever it might be, I think we're seeing athletes take a lot more control over their career. So uh, the easiest example would be something like JJ Watt announcing his, his free agency himself. Right. And he says, source me, things like that are are obvious and, and intentional. And athletes are doing these things um, to kind of not only control their own narrative, but build their own brand. So I think that's something that's cool and interesting on, on kind of like a high level. And then on like a more detailed basis, one of the things that I actually wrote about this the other day, and that, that's probably why I'm bringing it up because it's top of mind, but is how sports betting operators within the US as it's expanding are going about acquiring customers, right? So if you think about it from their standpoint, the cost to acquire a customer currently is a couple hundred dollars normally, which would be expensive in a normal industry, but in gambling when your lifetime value of a customer is a couple thousand dollars, it becomes a lot it makes a lot more sense. But we've seen things like Penn National teaming up with Barstool Sports, and they're you know using their content engine to be able to drive drive customers towards their platform. And we saw um, DraftKings just raise another billion dollars after having 1.7 billion already on their balance sheet in cash. So I I think they're probably gearing up to do something. FanDuel has been using the influencer route also with guys like Pat McAfee and others. Uh, So I I think that's a space to watch where it's like, hey, what is the easiest way and the cheapest way to acquire customers because when you think about it in the broad sense of like the operator in general, a lot of them are using similar technology, right? There's not a huge factor that differentiates them one from another. So when you think about the long-term strategy, it's like, okay, we're all going to be in similar similar playing field on the state by state level. When it's, you know, when the state approves Maybe it's a different timeline. We all get approved, but whatever. We're all going to be alive at some point in the same states. So it's, and if our technology is the same and there's no competitive advantage there, like how do we differentiate ourselves? And it's really just going to be who can acquire customers for the cheapest amount. And when you think about a normal rate being a couple hundred dollars, there's a lot of room to move there. So I think we're seeing influencers are already playing a part. We're seeing companies like DraftKings uh, and Penn obviously want to own their own media, right? So they want to own their own distribution and create those points where they can have inflection in their business and their growth. Uh, so I think it's something to watch. I think we're going to see a lot more of the next, you know, even 12 to 18 months of companies really taking a, you know, a strike at this and, and figuring out their cheapest way to acquire customers.
1: What about the collaboration with teams and leagues, do you see that also as kind of a way of uh, customer acquisition for them?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think for sure. I think that's another way. I think you've already, we see that common, right? Like all these leagues basically are getting someone. I saw, I don't know if this is what degree it was public, but I saw that the NFL in the rights deal with Fox, they made they, they said that Fox Bet will be the uh, the partnership of their uh, their official sports betting partner if they were to allow it, right? So that's a deal that makes a lot of sense for Fox. Basically, all the other leagues have someone in place if they're going to do it. And then all the teams have someone, right? So it's basically just a land grab for yeah. for not only mind share but attention. So over time, I think we'll see that continue. And it's really just like, okay, who can go after the biggest fan bases, who can get in front of the most amount of people, and who can acquire customers for the cheapest? Yeah.
2: Well, I want to ask Joe, we spend a good amount of time talking about innovation, particularly particularly digital innovation. We are all seeing, maybe the most common example we've seen of this is uh, NBA Top Shots and how DLT and tokenization of digital assets is coming to the fore in the sports arena. We will very soon be talking to one or two companies that are looking to work with teams and leagues and finding ways for them to leverage their digital assets or leverage their assets and digitize them in some way so that it becomes easier for them to raise capital. They want to marry, for example, on the team side, they want to marry that ability to go to the blockchain platform with fan engagement, and they want to basically democratize the way in which they can raise capital. So rather than having to, you know, you could be a relatively small team, but you need money. Investment banks are really not gonna look at you because the deal size is too small for them. But all of a sudden, all these digital platforms exist for you to go to your fans, and you may have a big fan base, or certainly a very passionate fan base, and each of them could agree to, to buy tokens, which lead to some kind of potential return in the future, or, if nothing else, demonstrate their fan loyalty. So, you know, rather than buy a jersey, I'm going to put my hundred bucks that I would have spent this season into funding the company through the blockchain. Uh, what is your take on that? What have you seen uh, happening? I know it's relatively grassroots, but I think it's going to accelerate pretty rapidly. What's your take on that? Yeah,
0: I tend to agree. I think we're. Right? We're still in the early stages of all this. And I think that blockchain is kind of like that sexy word that everyone likes to to throw around and, and stuff like that. But nobody but,
2: understands, right? Yeah, really?
0: <laughs> ex- ex- exactly. It's like, you know, I say it and everyone's like, oh, right. But there there is something there, I think, right? And I think that the teams that do it right can really do it well and they can use it in the right way and they'll be able to raise money and stuff like that. I think it, and you might know this better than me is like, I think the real impact will be on some of these like smaller European soccer teams that can use funding and stuff like that, uh, that have super, super, super passionate fan bases. And it's almost like, it's another way for them to engage with their fans, right? So it's not even just like, hey, donate. It's like, hey, let's do a Q&A with a player, pay some tokens and you'll be able to do right? There's a million different ways right. you can do it. But I think, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that there's a bunch of people that are out there trying to attack it. And I think the one thing that's of note is when you have a bunch of intellectual capital flowing into a space, working on something, like that's something you need to take notice of. And blockchain in sports is one of those things, right? So when it's not even talking about like, Uh, ways to raise capital for small teams, whether it's the NBA forming a blockchain advisory committee or whatever it is, right? Like there's a ton of smart people working on these problems, looking for solutions that blockchain can help with. So I think it's obviously something you just need to pay attention to. And I think it's something that's going to accelerate. Like you said, Uh, there's just more attention than ever on it. People know that blockchain can be useful. It's just about finding the right ways to do it, whether it's fan engagement, ticketing, whatever it might be. There's a ton of applications that people are trying. Some will work, some won't. But over the next twelve to eighteen months, I think we'll see a lot flushed out, and we'll see some succeed.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting about that, also, Anand, and I think Anand, this is kind of your prediction, right? That this will be kind of a thing that that expands even more. What's interesting about this is what happens when one of these things fail, right? There's no regulatory environment around it to sort of protect investors, essentially, right? So it's sort of buyer beware a little bit at this point. Uh, It all sounds neat and sexy right now, but. Maybe we'll see in a few years if it continues to grow, if we see a couple of these you know, deals fall through, right? Or something happens, right? And a club goes bankrupt, for instance, which will be interesting. So one of the calls that I have, there's this whole kind of uh, thing uh, that I tried to summarize in, in something called sort of like optionality, right? I feel like Joe, you mentioned you know players are able to sort of take care of uh, you know th- their 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 own decisions, their own their own careers, right? I feel like uh, we're at the onset of uh, of a time where you know the athlete mogul is becoming a thing. Uh, you know, LeBron James investing that huge amount of sum into uh, Fenway Media Group, Fenway Sports Group, rather. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff with options that potentially college athletes have, right? I'm seeing more options in terms of broadcasting uh, because that's happening through you know streaming and and other kind of platforms and things like that, right? I think when you go to the game itself, you're going to have options whether you want to sit and stare at something or you're going to stare at a screen that'll give you more data, more information, more things. And I just feel like sports is going to become like this, you know, multifaceted sort of distraction engine, right? Not necessarily in a bad way, but 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 it seems like a lot of sort of different options are opening up throughout throughout sports and sports business in general. So that's kind of my one of my sort of things that I think um will be will be evolving over the next five to ten years, even even more. So Joe, I wanted to do like a little bit of a preview for our for our next segment, uh which will go into the next show. Uh but tell us about your partnership uh, and and the EFT that you that you're launching and, and we'll we'll go into more detail with that. But just as kind of a little little bit of a tease before we close off this uh, first portion of the conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. This week I launched an ETF with Roundhill Investments. It's called MVP and it is the uh, the first ETF in the world that will allow you to invest in professional sports teams and franchises. So it includes, uh, obviously, all the publicly traded sports teams that you guys, you know, the Rangers, the Knicks, Manchester United, et cetera. And then it has the leagues, which are Formula One, WWE, and, and a few more. And then there's some apparel brands and media brands mixed in, like Adidas, Nike, stuff like that.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Joe, just before we close off this first portion, tell our
0: listeners, where can they connect with you online and find out more about Huddle Up and uh, and your work? So the two main ways would be I'm on Twitter at, at Joe Pompliano and then the newsletter is readhuddleup.com. Either one of those you'll, you'll find me at. And if you just want to go to Twitter, the link to the newsletter is in my bio, so you can find it there also.
1: Excellent. Joe, thanks for your time.
2: Thanks for coming on, Joe. We're actually looking forward to uh, learning a little bit more about your partnerships, uh, some of your views on certain areas in uh, other areas of the sports business. The, I think the listeners are going to love episode two or part two, rather, I should say. Yeah. Thanks for joining us.
0: Of course, guys. Thanks
2: for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us on our podcast. We know that if you're listening to this show, we know that you know how to subscribe to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends and your family about us. And if you'd like to get in touch, please connect with us. Our contact information is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We'll be in the game with you in a few days with our new episode.